A new dawn rises on the island of Montreal, casting a golden hue upon the lush forests that surround it this small town. Looking across the sparkling water of the river the Europeans had named St. Lawrence, a chieftain of the First Nations of North America whispered a quiet prayer for the day ahead. His name was Condiaronk, chief of the Wyandot Nation, and on this day, the 4th of August 1701, he would see to it that a century of war would come to an end. Condiaronk was a tall and strong man, but the lines of his face betrayed his age and told a tale of a lifetime at war. His head was fully shaved, except for a small patch on the top that flowed back into a long braid in the style of his people. Around his waist, he wore a black breech cloth trimmed in red, and on his feet, a pair of fine blackened buckskin moccasins. As the sun rose into the sky, Condiranc took one last look at the river and then made his way to the open field where the great peace of Montreal was being negotiated. Delegates from 39 First Nations had come to this island to negotiate the peace. And as Condiranc walked through the field, he made sure to stop and share some choice words with some of the representatives. First, he spoke to the chief of the Algonquins to the northwest, who was dressed in a brilliant painted deer and beaver skin robe. His fellow chief spoke words of doubt about the shaky peace that was forming, but Condurong deftly soothed his worries and concerns. Next, Condurong spoke to a few of his kin of the Wyandot. His people were on the brink of extinction after the century of bloodshed, but they gave Condurong words of encouragement, and he returned in kind. Finally, Condurong came to the Haudenosaunee, the confederacy of five First Nations from the south, led by the infamous Mohawks. Despite this being a day for peace, the Mohawks still wore their hair in their infamous shaved and spiked style reserved for times of war. It took all the self-control Condurank had to greet these warriors with civility, despite his thoughts turning to all the horrors these warriors had inflicted upon his people. But the warriors respectfully nodded back to him and even offered him a drink of beer. The Haudenosaunee needed this peace as much as the rest of them. If their warriors could be believed, their people faced a new threat to the South, a strange collection of Europeans calling themselves the Thirteen Colonies. As Condurong reached the centre of the field, he was greeted by the most strangely dressed figure of all, the 13th French governor of Montreal, Louis-Hector de Calière, who despite the warm summer weather, wore a long green coat embroidered with gold and matching waistcoat. Even more bizarrely, the governor appeared to be wearing some sort of wig atop his head. The Europeans did always have the most peculiar clothing. The governor and his entourage greeted Condurong eagerly, as they were just as big a bigger part of this peace treaty as the First Nations were after all. As all the representatives gathered and the proceedings were about to begin, Condurong's thoughts turned to the thousands of dead who had fallen in this war. Were their spirits watching them, watching him? Were they wondering if the survivors would fall at the last hurdle to peace? No, Condurong thought. They must have peace, because without it, they all faced annihilation. Welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick and I am joined as ever by my co-host Will. Will, how are you doing? I'm all good. Looking forward to this one. It's our penultimate episode and our final city. It is our final city. God, it's been a it's been a long road. It has been. Yeah, we've been recording this recording this um what was it? It's been at least two months of recording trying to get something it all like out. that. I don't remember time very well. Yeah. Who cares? But anyway, no, we've also had some major issues in terms of technology tonight. Yeah. So we're, we're starting we're, this way later than normal. Yeah, and it's also a pretty long episode. I think it's going to be. I've written, like, I don't know if this, this is, like, maybe too telling, but we weirdly normally write, like, seven pages worth of notes. Yeah. And I've tipped over to nine now, so... Nine. Okay, well, settle in, listener. I mean, yeah. you've probably already seen how long it is before we we know, obviously. So, yeah, we uh, have no idea how long it's going to be, but the listeners do, because yeah, they can see it. Exactly. <laughs> Apologies if it's very, very long. Maybe we'll cut it down in the editing. Absolutely. Um, whilst we've got you guys, uh, thank you so much for all your kind comments so far. You guys have been brilliant this season. Um, and we just wanted to uh, say thank you so much. And please follow us at Cloak and Dagger Podcast on Instagram, where we release three uh, three posts per week per episode when we're releasing. And uh, yeah, it's just a load of fun. And yeah. it's a good community we've got there too. Yeah, it adds loads of kind of extra depth. And I would say for this episode particularly, it's worthwhile following us because there is a very specific image that I want to show, that I will be showing you later. But listeners, you also want to see it. Otherwise, that part of the podcast will seem really lame because we're just us talking about something you can't see. It sounds ominous. It's not that ominous. <laughs> 
but it's very it's really worth seeing so yeah that's not just a plug you know you could just go i mean we'd like you if you followed us on instagram as well but you could just go and look at it you don't need to follow us to i mean to see it if you've gone that far I mean, do it, yeah do it anyway just do it it's not taking any it's great time. content yeah, yeah it's yeah. great great content okay let's dive into this okay let's go <laughs> Okay, so as Will said, we are on our final city from this season two of Cities. Yeah. Of our overall season four and a five? half. <laughs> Something. <laughs> yeah, because the Battles one was so short. It's like... That, that was, was three like... and a half, so this is four. Oh, okay, I see. Is that right? Then and he gives this this whole series is only a half? No, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess... Whatever. Something it's our, like that. Something either four or five. Yes, but this is our final city, um, and we're going to go to a place of the world that we haven't really covered that much before, um, because this city is Montreal. Ooh. I'm supposed to say that with a slight French accent. Uh, Montreal. I don't think so. Yeah, no, it's not It's it's not French enough to be, yeah, yeah. No, it's just Montreal. Montreal, Montreal yeah. It probably isn't go. like that either. Sorry for any Canadians. That's kind of more American as well. Well, <laughs> however you say it, our city is Montreal. And I don't think we've done anything on Canada. Oh, Canada. So far. No, I don't think so. Yeah, we've done quite a bit on America because we all know lots about American history. But Canada also has a very rich history. Mm. And Montreal in particular has a very interesting history. And so today's episode, I will be taking us through a interesting time in their history, which is enrolled in lots of battles. Although you pointed out last week uh, off air that i have weirdly centered this season a lot around battles which yeah. wasn't my intention at all but this is actually about a piece Ooh. so i'm breaking tradition i mean it's after obviously a big battle and, and lots of warfare but it is <laughs> about the piece it is we were sort of talking after the last uh, two weeks ago episode and uh, we realized that uh, patrick had been doing lots of sort of big history this this season for some reason yeah, it's weird i don't know why it's completely un- you didn't do it on purpose it wasn't like that and i've actually been going the other way it's just the way that we've been doing it has been quite organic and we never really discuss what the other one's doing because we want it to be i know nothing no. of what patrick's about to tell me except for the date and so then we can sort of not cross over although we're pretty close this time i was going to yeah. say we're literally like 30 years apart for our two episodes in montreal we're pretty sure these are different stories well, yeah, yeah yeah i'm pretty sure and i can obviously i can doctor mine to make it less like your one just come up with a new story just invent most of no them. That's i like I do mine <laughs> <laughs> anyway sorry carry on so unlike other cities we've done this season like rome and kabul which we've had to like speed through about five thousand years or like ten thousand years of their history in about two minutes montreal is mercifully has a much shorter history however it's not really because it actually has a shorter history it's just because we don't know about most of its history mm. really we only really know significant history since the europeans have got there which sure. which sucks because a lot of the kind of first nation people that were there originally have oral history and unfortunately because of epidemics and warfare a lot of the people who could tell those histories died pretty quickly as soon as the europeans arrived so there's so much history that we lost which is a real shame because there would have been like these massive historical events akin to like the fall of rome or like all these major uh, incidents that happened in europe that we know loads about and they would have had all this but we just don't know about it it's so true when we did our new york episode i remember going through that and the first thing you hear about is when the uh, the french explorer first turns up and meets the people um that were living there and that's where it all starts because you can't know more than that except yeah. from what archaeology leaves and the problem is they were mainly a nomadic people, so they don't actually leave structures. It's Yeah, it's difficult. It's really hard to kind of tell where they were. But our story, or at least the story of Montreal, roughly starts... Uh, I mean, anthropologists and archaeologists have said there's probably people living in and around Montreal and the region surrounding it for about 8,000 years. Wow. So... You know, kind of like everywhere else, really. There's, yeah. there's people, there's people everywhere. <laughs> but it's interesting though that, like, how North America was, uh, like, in terms of the migrations of peoples mm. to to get to North America and South America, they must have been the last to be populated if they're coming from Africa. Yeah, you'd think that's a very good point. Yeah, to suddenly, because it's because it's yeah. going up into Russia and then over the Straits and then down. Yeah, yeah, South America would be literally the last place. You'd think. Yeah. That's a really weird fact. Yeah, that's a very... Because uh, it doesn't... I don't think it's made that big of an impact because at least from my understanding, we're already very off topic here, but like <laughs> one of like the theories about why a lot of uh, American civilizations weren't as advanced as European was because there wasn't like a ready supply of domesticatable animals, oh, which right. you need to have to build cities. 
And mm. so, like, you know, they had like llamas and bison and deer. None of them are very good at being domesticated because a bison could just run over you. <laughs> Whereas they didn't have cows and they didn't have chickens or sheep or goats, which are really easy to domesticate and really like useful. And they didn't even have horses. They didn't have horses. Horses came from Europe. Yeah, and you can't really ride a llama. <laughs> you can try. You can try. <laughs> but they spit and are angry and like they're kind of like camels, which I guess people did ride. But horses was like the, the engine of most of Eurasia. Yeah. And, you know, North America and South America didn't really have that. So I think that's one of the... I mean, they did have cities, but they vanished and it wasn't as the common. The Mississippi uh, culture yes. civilization is the one that everyone knows, which yes. has the, the, the massive mounds everywhere. Yeah. You can still yeah. go and see, I think, in, near St. Louis in Missouri. Mm. I think that's where the big one is. I, I was going to do an episode on this, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> it was too big. And, I, you know, anyway, sorry. We like to bring in, like, random facts from, like, episode graveyard where the things that died and never made it into a full episode. But it's yeah. good. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's... Archaeologists say that they've been around about 8,000 years, but the history we do know about them starts maybe around 1,000 CE. And in and around Montreal, there were these people. They were kind of a nomadic people that settled here. And there's kind of evidence that they that they remained there, and we don't know a huge amount about them. But what I found quite interesting is that if it's around 1000 CE, that puts them at the exact right time and nearly the right place to meet the real first European explorers of North America, the Vikings. Oh, yeah. Leif Erikson. Eric the Red. Yeah. Well, his son. Oh, is that his son? Eric the Red is Leif Erikson's father. Ah, sorry, right. So Leif Erikson is the guy who is Norse, but then went to Iceland. Iceland. And last time I was in Iceland, they have this big statue of him. And then he went all the way to what he... I think he called it Vinland and thought it was part of, like, Greenland. Mm. Um, Funnily enough, he didn't think it was Asia, unlike all of the other Europeans that came in (laughs) a few centuries later. Um, But And Leif Erikson doesn't record ever meeting any kind of First Nations people. But his brother, Thorvald Erikson, did and actually died. He got killed by them. Did he? Yeah. It seems like it's unsure about why. Like either he was just trying to trade with them and they shot him or he attacked first. It's a bit unclear. Okay. But it didn't go down very well, which is interesting because like imagine if that had gone well and the Vikings had set up this trade route to Newfoundland or wherever. Yeah, to America so much earlier on. And I wonder how that would have changed the dynamics of America. <laughs> yeah, that is such a good point. It would point. have been really, really weird. Or whether or not like they would have started to slowly weirdly introduce illnesses and epidemics but would have given the the, the, the native americans the first nations the chance to survive mm. whereas the huge waves of europeans that came over earlier they just couldn't you know obviously there was warfare but all the ad- epidemics just wiped them out so yeah it could have changed like all of history of america if leaf Erickson just decided to stay but he didn't and he yeah. wanted to wander off somewhere else and then his brother got shot so maybe maybe that was that didn't want to hang around yeah um, but so these people that kind of existed here, uh, they kind of come back into the story of, of Montreal around the 14th century. And this is where it's kind of considered they had fully established themselves. They had fully settled. They built fortified villages and started to cultivate maize. And what's weird is we don't actually have a proper name for them. There is a name that I'm going to tell you in a second, but I don't really consider it to be their proper name. Because the name that textbooks and history papers call them is the St. Lawrence Iroquois. Which I'm sure you can imagine isn't really a proper name for Saint these. Lawrence, Saint literally Lawrence. a saint, something yeah. they don't have in Native American culture. Yeah, exactly. So there's a few things wrong with that name. Um, obviously, firstly, Saint Lawrence definitely not a First Nations name. It's actually named after it came from the Saint Lawrence River, which is the river that uh, the island of Montreal sits in, and that's kind of named after the Saint Lawrence Bay. And the reason the bay is called Saint Lawrence is because the first French explorers who arrived in the bay arrived on the 10th of August, uh, 1535, which is the feast, feast day, day of St. Lawrence. Is that why? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's... I thought it was going to be a bit more interesting than that, but no, they, like, arrived and they went, well, we'll just call this St. Saint... Like, it's auspicious, like, St. Lawrence guided us here or something. Brilliant, yeah. So they named the bay, then named the river, and then went, well, that's a good enough name for these people. <laughs> God, that is bad. But it, it gets worse also because... The second part of that name, the Iroquois, which this is an extra bit. Iroquois is kind of a bastardized version of a French word. And Iroquois is like an English ending to a French word. Love it. But the other important thing is that it's not really a First Nations name either. It does come from a First Nations word that 
in translated means real snakes and it actually came from another first nations people the algonquins mm. and they referred to this, these people uh, the iroquois as iroquois because they were insulting them so the bastards basically yeah yeah they called them they were these snakes we don't like them and then the europeans just asked the algonquins what are they called and went well that's good enough we won't ask we them. call them the pricks yeah yeah ah you're from the prick nation so we'll just so we'll just so and then the, because they wrote things down that is immortalized ah. the iroquois or the iroquois as their name even though that's not really their name but you know, it's a little bit like um you know old testament it's israelites versus philistines Oh, really? The Philistines are the baddies of the Old yeah, Testament. Yeah, yeah, But they're just the guys next door. And because the Philistines yeah. didn't survive, the Israelites wrote down the Bible and went, these guys are dicks. Yeah. And now, yeah. if you're old-fashioned, it used to be the swear word. Well, not swear word, but like a thing was, you call someone a Philistine. Yeah. It was like a, an old term thing. It's, it's, just it's weird, very it? similar to that. It's, yeah, it's like an insult that just got adopted by Europeans and they wrote the books yeah. and wrote the history because they're the winners. So they get to control the narrative. Um, and then also, so these people we're talking about that lived around Montreal weren't Iroquois oh. or, or weren't what is the actual name of Iroquois, which I will now be using for the rest of the episode, which is the Haudenosaunee people. Ah, okay. So that is their official name. That is what they, because they're still around and that is what they like to be called. And that is the name they called themselves. Okay. Not Iroquois, but sure. that is the, the name that is now used synonymously. So if you've heard any of this stuff, just to reference, that's who I'm speaking of. But these people who lived in these St. Lawrence Iroquoians aren't Haudenosaunee. Really? Like they're, they're linguistically, ethnically, culturally completely distinct from this group. They've just been lumped in with them. Oh, okay. So we don't really Typical. know who they are, but they definitely aren't St. Lawrence Iroquoians. Um, but these were the people who kind of inhabited Montreal uh, from the earliest point. This is the They settled the island of Montreal okay. um, and they kind of established themselves. But the reason we know so little about them is that they vanished around about 1580. And oh, no one's man. really sure why. Probably an epidemic, possibly warfare with other First Nations, or just got absorbed into other First Nations. But there's theories, but no one's really sure why. Okay, which interesting. Which kind of weird. 1580s. Yeah. Crazy. It's amazing how quickly so many of these nations just were wiped out, mainly by diseases brought over by Europeans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really, I mean, that will be a theme of most of this episode, but um, oh, but so yeah, sad. really sad. So the next chapter in Montreal's history comes in 1611 when the French explorer, Samuel de Champlain, uh -huh. near enough, um, he establishes a trading post on the island of Montreal after finding it abandoned. Cause, so he expected to find these uh, settlers, these First Nation settlers, and then finds it abandoned and goes, well, I'll set up a trade posting. <laughs> That sounds that, oh that sounds like it'll work. He probably thought it was divine providence that this like oh. quite a useful place. Oh, there's a lot of that because actually the next people who move in in 1639 are French noblemen who basically want to turn it into a mission because they oh, and really? they and they see it as their like mission to convert the air quotes savages. They set up the Société de Notre Dame de Montreal, oh, which is weird because they already use the word Montreal, but at this time the place isn't called Montreal. It's it, it they they actually named the settlement Villa Marie. Okay. And it's something there's a I think there's a hill on the thing called Mount Royal and then Montreal. French they call kind it, of yeah, didn't they call it uh, because I think um, from doing research for my own one, I think it looks like a crown. I yes, think it's a three yeah, yeah. hill. It's like a three peak hill. So they kind of name it that. So it's a it, they they already start to use the name Montreal quite early on, but yeah. it's not the official name for, until much later. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of weird how these names kind of appear. And I guess it maybe was just like the common name for it. And then it just got established itself. Sure, sure, sure. So, but so this settlement, the Villa Marie or Montreal, as it will go on to be called, uh, is kind of brand new, but it isn't long until it becomes embroiled in a war that carves a bloody path across all of the region around it, all of kind of North America or Northeast and North America. Oh, really? And that is where our tale begins. Ah, oh, I see. So it's the settlers. Uh, so sorry, are you just to just to clarify? Yes. It's the Villa Marie or V Marie, I'm guessing. The V Marie settlers, the guys from France who've turned up. Yes. Clashing with the basically the locals. Well, it's it's quite complicated actually the situation. Okay. So to kind of explain the real cause of the warfare that goes on, if you're a European settler who's arrived in the 17th century into Montreal or the surrounding region, 
the quickest way you can become rich, which is what all they want to do, is getting involved in the fur trade. Now, this is where loads of money is being made because the animals like beavers and deer and moose and all sorts of fauna up in those uh, kind of cold, wintry mountains have really great high quality fur that you want to trade with and then send back to France. And you can make a boatload of money out of that. I'm sure. But the smartest Europeans don't go hunting themselves. They trade with the First Nation people who are much better at it. They know the land, they know the animals. So why would you get why would you get out of bed? I mean yeah. you can all you have to do is trade some like scissors or, you know, some like trinkets, like a mirror or something, or maybe a few muskets. You know, that's how you're gonna get that's how you're gonna get your fur. Yeah, you can just hear the uh, the patronizing colonizer, <laughs> can't you, from just here. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah so yeah. oh look at this thing I absolutely do not know how to make, mm. but someone of my culture has worked out how to do. Well they probably sound a lot like us, to be honest. Well that's what I mean. <laughs> we're, we're white from England, so you know. Oh, yeah. I mean they're French in this case, so yeah. But still patronizing. For once it's not uh, we're not actually bashing the British Empire. Give it time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, really? Yeah, spoiler alert for the rest of the episode. <laughs> oh, right, sorry. So the French colonists in the region primarily traded with two First Nations in particular. The Algonquins, who we've already spoken about, and they're actually a kind of general term for a kind of a whole suite of First Nation peoples um, that all spoke the kind of Algonquin language. So they were kind of linked by the, their shared language. And the other group that they traded primarily with are the Wyandot people. So, uh, and they will become a more important part of the story later. So you've got these two main groups that they're kind of dealing with. But obviously, with all this trade, with all this money coming in, it attracts other First Nations. Most crucially, the Haudenosaunee. The, ah. the Iroquois, if you want, but real name. Who were there before the Algonquins were? Were the Haudenosaunee the people who were there in the 1000 CE? So it's the one. Those are the people that we don't really know who they are, and there's theories that they. It seems they were, they had shared a language with the Haudenosaunee, so that it's likely they were connected, but slightly more nomadic, whereas the Haudenosaunee were a bit more. A bit, they were they they kind of stayed still a bit more, but they conquered as opposed to just shifting around a lot. Okay, all right. So it's you know all of these all of these nations are there from the beginning, um, and it's just who the French are choosing to deal with, and they primarily choose with the Algonquins and the Wyandots. Whereas the Haudenosaunee, they just they don't trust, and the Haudenosaunee are also quite warlike, and perhaps most crucially, also allied with the Dutch at the time. Ah, so you've got these like rivalries between First Nations somehow mixing in with rivalries between European colonists as well. So it's kind of a powder keg like ready to explode because there's just all these different people who have these rivalries that go back generations from both sides of the world yeah all surrounded this very valuable fur trade it's so fascinating and when you think about language just for a moment Mm. how does everyone communicate you know what i mean like how do the dutch talk to the this type of uh this particular culture who then have a problem with a different culture who then talk to the French in their mm. language. Like, how does that all work? I assume like the, every... It sounds like a lot of the First Nations would have had, you know, intelligent members of the community who would be able to learn European languages. I don't think it went the other way. I can't imagine there are many Europeans learning First Nation languages. Mm. But there were First Nation, you know, chiefs or just intelligence members of, of the nations that were smart enough to learn the language. Oh, I'm, I'm not doubting that. Yeah. It's just... Uh, it's complicated when, though, isn't it? When you're actually thinking about that, because obviously in a modern context, you think, especially where we are in the world, mm. English is such a synonymous international language that most people learn it because they want to get a... If they're in this country, it helps. But back then, when there wasn't a universal language, all of the different... Even if you get go from different parts of... Like countries, you'd you wouldn't be able to understand one another. Yeah. So yeah. suddenly you're going into an entirely new realm where there's so many different uh, tribes who have their own cultures and languages, and and it's I mean as you said, the Algonquin are only a, a, a synonymous people because they just speak a similar dialect. Yeah. 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 You know, they're it's not just... necessarily you know they'll have their own cultures, their own independence. They'll all be very mixed in. So it's 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 chaotic. And it it's is. mad, but there's money to be made. So Europeans are there like a capitalism. Of hell. Yeah, <laughs> capitalism and epidemics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're there for the long haul. Um, so the Haudenosaunee are looking to kind of expand their territory into what would be considered 
uh, Wyandotte and Algonquin territory, and now French territory, because the French, you know, they're there and claiming land on behalf of the king. And although they're kind of imposing on these other First Nation borders, everyone's trading, so they're all being quite successful and making a lot of money out of this, so no one's too bothered. But the Haudenosaunee are moving north. So they are from kind of south of Montreal, and they are looking to expand. They're looking to get more of the the hunting ground so they can make more money off the fur trade because they're trading with the Dutch. So it's kind of this two sides that is already being set up. And if there's two sides, chances are something's going to cause a war. Absolutely. And unsurprisingly, it was the Europeans who started it. Oh, really? Oh. Yes. So uh, remember the guy, Samuel de Champlain, um, he saw, he sees the Haudenosaunee as a real threat to his fur trade. And so he kicks off the fighting. And it's it, there's no doubt that he went uh, out to start a war. He, I think he even says it. Like, he says, like, that was my plan. And along the side of... I only just realised this. Along the side of Lake Champlain, which <laughs> I've just realised is the same name as the guy. So along the side of the of the lake that was named after him. I don't know if it was named that at the time. It won't have been. It won't so, have been. So quite ironically, um, he his men, alongside some uh, allied First Nation warriors, attack the Haudenosaunee war band. And this is the first time that firearms are used against the Haudenosaunee and that is a big deal for them because Ah. it is eye-opening about how war can be fought because actually before this first nation wars were very ritualistic and really like planned like they would meet beforehand and go okay but we'll start at you know we'll start at six like or actually you're you're a bit like all right start at 10 we'll start at 10 here is here okay is this field good yeah yeah like they're really nice to each other they chant the night before and then actually their fighting is not that bloody because they don't have that terrifying weaponry you know the devastating kind of losses that you get in european conflicts doesn't happen as much here because if with bows and arrows and wooden and stone things it can get quite nasty but it's quite hard. It's slow to kill people. And actually, a lot of the time, it would just be a bit of conflict and then one side would retreat. So this is literally mapping on Shaka Zulu episode. Yeah. With yeah. the Zulu, the Zulu tribe. Go listen to that episode. It's really, really good. From, yeah. I think, our second series. But um, And, and it's, it's the same thing. And then, of course, the Europeans come in and they... So this is the other thing I was just thinking. You were saying how the Haudenosaunee are going north, right? Mm. They probably were always going north every season because they were running on seasons yeah yeah but europeans didn't run on seasons by that point because no. they had mastered nature by that point or mm. to a certain degree and they were being they were probably disrupting a system that had been going on for centuries yeah it's just like for fuck's sake and then they Sounds bring in gunpowder yeah. as well and then it's like oh well what did you expect was going to happen yeah so it's it, it's it's you know we said it was a powder keg and now it's just a bunch of gasoline thrown in there and then a couple of muskets thrown on top of it like it's not it's clearly gonna uh, erupt and that is exactly what happened so this kicks off the fur wars okay i like my weird name of wars because we had the cod wars earlier in this season and now i've got the fur wars <laughs> so it's true. also sometimes referred to as the beaver wars but i think that's a bit too silly yeah yeah, yeah. fur wars is good it's quite you know the cod wars was okay because there was only one casualty which is sad but you know not massive losses. This is pretty brutal. So it's less fun to, to make funny names about it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so when the war began, on the one side, you have the Wyandots and the Algonquins supported by their French allies. And you have the Haudenosaunee supported by their Dutch allies, but then would go on to be supported by their British allies. So they actually kind of swap who is their like benefactors. And the reason for this is essentially... This is going to be kind of difficult to explain because it's hard to nail down exactly what territories all of these First Nation people held at this time. But roughly, the Wyandots, uh, who are also known as the Hurons, uh, if you've heard that name before, but again, that is actually a kind of French projection of a name. The Wyandot is their official name and the name they call themselves. But they held the lands kind of southwest of Montreal, near modern-day Toronto. Okay. The Algonquins, which is an accurate name, uh, they held huge amounts of land um, to the northwest of Montreal, what is now like kind of a big chunk of southern Quebec. So, And obviously that's lots of different First Nations, so that's kind of lots of people there. And the Haudenosaunee held 
vast lands to the south of Montreal, going all the way down to what is now upstate New York. Which is where the Brits were, but before them, which it was is where the Dutch, the Dutch were. Because so it was New Amsterdam before New York. That is where they get the changeover. So ah. after the British take over New Amsterdam, rename it, they go, and you've got all these lovely allies who are attacking the French. And you know what we like? Attacking the French. Oh my days. Okay, all right. So if there was any chance of peace between... It's it's so interesting that it's it's it, there's almost a kind of proxy war element of Britain fighting France through these First Nations conflicts. Hmm. And they're both supporting them. There's a bit of that, but maybe not quite as much as, say, like Vietnam or, or some of the more modern stuff, because the presence of colonists in uh, North America isn't as large. They're not so overwhelming. Like the warfare between the First Nations is pretty intense already. And there's always this this like generation of the kind of vendettas and warfare between particularly the Haudenosaunee and then these northern First Nations. Yeah, okay. I did actually, when I was doing some of my work for my episode, I noticed how few, like the population size of settlers from, from France, for instance, mm numbered in the hundreds yeah it's tiny it's absolutely tiny they are they are supporters they're benefactors they're not they're not there in force yet no, no, i not. mean the french it's a while until that and obviously there's there's growing numbers of colonists in the south but it's it's weirdly small and actually so it's not quite a proxy war they're just almost like they're supporting their favorite first nations but then i guess when you think about it it's kind of just at the beginning of the industrial revolution so of mm. course they can't get there in big numbers because everything wasn't machine made yeah. yet so yeah, they're yeah. still in that olden time everything takes longer to get to yeah yeah, yeah. you also and die younger exactly yeah yeah and it's still old you know weaponry i mean they're using arquebuses mm -hmm. which is which, and you know muskets and stuff have been around for hundreds of years but it's not moved on quite yet it's not we're not getting into kind of I don't think we get into flintlock rifles. I think flintlock pistols are around, but not flintlock, not flintlock rifles. Yes. You used to have the massive arquebusiers, which are the yeah, yeah. They're yeah. better as clubs. And yeah, they used to have axes on the end. Do you remember? Really? Oh yeah, they that was that. a great image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So now I'm not going to go fully into this war because it's it's referred to as a war, but really it's on and off conflict for almost a century. So it's, you know, it would take days to explain the whole thing. But suffice to say, it is a pretty bloody century. So the Haudenosaunee, after that first battle by, by the side of Lake Champlain, um, I think the way I'm saying that is getting weirder and weirder every time I say That's it. That's fine. But after they first encounter firearms, that is clearly a wake-up call for them. Like, we need to change our tactics. Oh, presumably they lost that battle. Yes, yeah. Well, they the two of the chiefs, two of their chiefs were killed and they were treated. Ah, so okay. it was a big moment. Like, you know, they were planning to fight the way they always do and expecting a normal battle. And then these Europeans arrive and just from afar take out these two chiefs that were probably, like, very well armoured enough to, like, deflect stone, like, bow and arrow kind of thing mm. but then a bullet they can't stop anything no. so this like seeps into their psyche and changes their warfare forever and they begin trading and purchasing firearms from the dutch and then from the british and begin using that in their warfare and they become excellent guerrilla warfare tactics and really get good at using firearms they're really effective okay but unfortunately on the other side the wyandots and the algonquins would love to be using firearms but the French made a decision a few decades before that they weren't going to sell firearms to any native First Nation groups unless they converted to Christianity. Oh, for fuck's sake. So their allies are getting destroyed by the Haudenosaunee. And they're like, mm, I don't think we can trust you with firearms. Uh, well, I, I mean, I can kind of see that. It's maybe a bad idea of the Dutch and the British to just start giving guns out. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is a very repeated story in history about a larger power just giving guns to people and thinking well they'll finish that off and then they'll i'm sure they'll give all the guns back and stop being a nuisance or at least not be as proficient as we are with them and we'll always be okay yeah and actually that's not how this not works. at all no so the wandots and the algonquins are in real trouble here and actually the Haudenosaunee are a very effective fighting force they're actually a group of five different nations that have come kind of from the west they are the Onida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, the Seneca, and their kind of leading nation was the Mohawk nation, oh, I think okay. a lot of people have heard of. Yeah. And they are very war proficient. The, their warriors, you know, are, are very effective in combat. And when they learn how to use muskets and firearms, 
they are all kind of unstoppable. The only real damage they take is when the French colonists or soldiers from France arrive to attack them. Mm. So it's a real like kind of power play. It's really kind of the French versus the Haudenosaunee, you know, and then the British are kind of and Dutch are supporting, and then the Algonquins and why why and the Wyandots are also supporting. So it's a very complicated setup with lots of parties and very like different levels of technological advantage. Yeah, but it, it means but there's no real clear winner. So it is a century of bloodshed and small skirmishes or raids or attacks on convoys, all sorts of stuff. So it's a it's a rough time. Yeah. It's a rough century for these people. It sounds it. So sad. But as I say, I'm not going to spend time focusing on the war, even though I spent about 10 minutes focusing on it. <laughs> I would like to focus on, the at the end of the century, the peace that comes out of this. Oh, yeah. So by the end of the 17th century, both sides of the Fur Wars are really considering suing for peace because it has been generations of bad blood. So no one really alive now remembers a time before this, but they are all smart enough to realize this is awful. We need to find a peace. So both sides are really interested in this. Obviously, the Wyandots and the Algonquins are actually nearly destroyed by the the fighting. The Wyandots have actually, by the end of the century, kind of been absorbed into other other nations because there's just not enough of them to survive. To survive, really. And but then also the Haudenosaunee are also struggling a bit. So all of the First Nations are really struggling because of epidemics. Like that's probably the biggest killer throughout the entire century. Although it's a bloody century of warfare, they are just getting destroyed by these epidemics and losing so many people. And the French colonists and, and soldiers are also very effective at fighting the Haudenosaunee. Like, although the Haudenosaunee are holding their own, doing a marvellous job of fighting them back, if you're dying, if your your soldiers are dying from epidemic and then you get attacked by these immune French soldiers who also have this kind of unlimited supply of this you know, massive empire over the sea that's just supplying them. Yeah. Although with a king who's getting kind of annoyed that nothing's really going very going there well. Um, but it's it's not good for the Haudenosaunee. And there's another element to this of the Haudenosaunee have started to realise there is another power that they are getting quite scared of. And that power to the south of them is the 13 colonies. Oh, because I see. So at this point, they are presumably losing a bit of their support from the British because all of this kind of power base of the British is now kind of a bit independent. It's not fully independent yet, obviously. We're still in the 17th century. That's next century. But at this time, the 13 colonies are pretty self-sustaining and almost autonomous and are already resisting a lot of control from London. And from their point of view, they don't really want to piss off the French you know, they've no, got no beef trading with them. with them, presumably, or want to. They want to be on good terms with the French, so why would they be supporting this First Nation group that have been attacking the French for the last hundred years? Mm. And it's probably a very smart move, given how essential French allyship was for these 13 nations a hundred years later. Yeah, and thinking about it, if the Haudenosaunee are like this warrior tribe or mm. warrior people, and you're the British, you want to direct that uh, that aggression away from you and the thing is, if the Haudenosaunee are looking north mm. at France, New France, it means the 13 colonies probably are able to establish themselves so succinctly because yeah. they're, what would have probably been damaging them is the Haudenosaunee. But if they're elsewhere, exactly, and now they've probably turned around and looked down and gone, oh, hang on. These are, these are guys that are a big threat. I mean, they are a powerhouse. They're not just colonists who are there just to do some trading. They are an established growing kind of empire or a nation of their own like there it's like well it's literally i mean spoiler alert, it's going to turn into a big pretty big country at some point <laughs> but that's the thing like so they're pretty scared about that and the 13 colonies are pushing north and taking over Haudenosaunee land so it seems like a weird like they've suddenly become surrounded from having this power base of the dutch and british support to their south that they probably weren't worried about suddenly that switched to Maybe it feels probably feels like overnight to them because they all look the same. They still look like British colonists, of course. But for some reason, these ones aren't responding to the British generals. They might be want to be on better terms with the French. It's a very weird situation, and uh, just like all the other First Nations, the Haudenosaunee have taken massive losses because of epidemics. So now they're worried. Not only we might lose this, 
we could go extinct. Yeah. Like now suddenly all these First Nations are probably thinking about we need to survive. Mm. And war is not a great way to survive when you're dying by the thousands because of epidemics. Yeah, fair enough. So peace is in the air. Or the hope for peace is in the air because actually there's still quite a lot of fighting going on. <laughs> but they need they need a they need someone to lead it. They need someone to lead this hope for peace. And that is where we find our good friend from the beginning of this episode, Kondiaronk. Ah, here he is. So Kondiaronk is or Chief Kondiaronk, to give his full title. I'm sure he's probably got a longer title as well, but in a First Nation language I can't say that. Um Do you know what Kondiaronk means? I don't. It doesn't say. So, well, I don't know what his name means, but I do know he was given, and I'll explain it a bit why, but he was given the nickname The Rat, which he actually kind of took on a bit like his moniker. I don't think he disliked ah, it. Okay. He's a really interesting guy. I mean, we heard a little bit about him from at the beginning, but Kondiaronk is was a part of the now nearly extinct Wyandot nation. Okay. So obviously has massive beef with the Haudenosaunee. And also has quite a famous reputation as a strategist, a diplomat, and most importantly, an orator, which is a really big deal to First Nation culture because a lot of what they place a lot of importance in the ability to speak and persuade. And it seems like actually it's kind of integral to their structure. And actually a lot of big political decisions, rather than just being coming from like a king or a chief, they have these big debates, you know, inside like a inside a tent or a teepee where they're deciding what to do mm. so the ability to persuade and speak powerfully is really important to these cultures and so Kondiaronk is great at that okay. he's really really effective at it in fact he's he's also because he and he obviously speaks french maybe english as well so he's very multicultural and he's constantly dealing with the french um he even uh has quite a few debates with French citizens, including the French governor of Montreal. Oh. And I'll, uh, to give a, get a kind of idea of this, the kind of guy, I'll read one of his, there's like an excerpt of, because lots of um, French writers at the time were fascinated by this guy and so wrote down these big conversations that he had with important figures. So this was with the French governor of Montreal and it's when they're debating the their two civilizations' virtues. Oh, so okay. this is Condé Ronk. I have spent six years reflecting on the state of European society, and I still can't think of a single way they act that is not inhuman, and I generally think this can only be the case as long as you stick to your distinctions of mine and thine. I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils, the bane of souls, and the slaughterhouse of the living. Wow. How intense is that? I mean, it makes sense because he's saying mine and thine. It's like what's yours is you own it. It's property. It's single ownership, which is completely goes completely against what Native American exactly. First Nation tribes. It's about community. Exactly. He goes on. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigues, trickery, lies, betrayal and insecurity. All of the world's worst behavior. Fathers sell their children, husbands their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, and friends are false, all because of money. In the light of all of this, tell me that we, Wyandot, are not right in refusing the touch of silver. Uh, I mean, he would do well today. He would do very well today. <laughs> yeah. It's a really, it's, it's fascinating because, I mean, I wonder if this is just like, I think he really was like this. For everything, it seems like he really was a great orator. But it kind of reminds you a bit, or reminds me at least, of a bit of like the debates that happened at the beginning, the the the, the founding of, of the United States. These kind of orators, these people who could speak so fluently and that was their power. Yeah, I, I do wonder. I think also what that really reminds me anyway of is that, you know how we we like to, in our culture anyway, sort of associate Christian values mm. with moral values. Yeah. When in fact, as in like anti-capitalist, you know, yeah, your, yeah. your neighbour is, is meant to, you look after your neighbour. But mm. that is bollocks. It doesn't come from Christianity. Mm. This guy is not a Christian. No. And he is literally, when I was thinking of what he was just saying there, he is really, it sounds almost a Christianity. It has a Christianic way of thinking, but it's absolutely come from a different derivative. It's, yeah. it's arrived there from an organic source, from a completely different culture to the one that we get those values from. Yeah, 100%. So it does come from humans themselves. Like it's a good culture will develop these morals if it wants to survive. And it's amazing. I mean, it's not that far away from like um, the, 
think is it Jesus that says that it's like the easier to get a camel through a needle than it is for a rich man to pass into the kingdom. It's along those lines, but it is that said is better, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, nothing on Jesus. He seemed like a nice guy, but he's got nothing on Condoronk <laughs> in terms of archery. Um, but Condoronk is also no means a man of peace. He will become one, but throughout most of the century so he's born in around 1649 so he's really born into this world of warfare and epidemics and french and british colonists messing everything up but he actually spends a lot of his time in attempts to protect his nation the wyandots by ensuring the conflict between the french and the haudenosaunee remained he acted to kill any chance of peace between them because he only saw the protection of his people would come through French defense. Like the French needed to remain at war with their enemies so that their enemies would never attack them. Okay. Or at least they were a bit more safe from them. And there's quite a good um, story here he did. So one in 1688, Condoronk learned that the French were attempting to negotiate a peace with the Haudenosaunee. And this was just when he was leading a war band against a Haudenosaunee village. When he discovers this... He sends. He decides there's a massive betrayal of the French. You know, this is throwing us under the bus. Yeah. So he decides to order his men to attack the Haudenosaunee peace delegation headed for Montreal. Ah, clever. Then when he he takes the load of them out, takes load of them captive, and then feigns surprise when the delegation hostages tell him that they are just there for peaceful negotiations, and then he says he tells them. Go, my brothers, I release you and send you back to your people, despite the fact that we are at war with you. It is the governor of the French who has made me commit this act, which is so treacherous that I shall never forgive... This is so weird. It is so treacherous that I shall never forgive myself for it if your five nations does not take their righteous vengeance. So he's saying, I will feel bad about it forever if you guys don't... Enact your vengeance upon us and our French leader, which is such a mad thing. That's so scheming. That's a little finger sort of, I can see why it's called the rat. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the way he's going. But he seems to kind of like the name. And uh, you'll see a bit why, um, or the proof why he kind of liked it. But he is very good at playing both against each other. And then, you know, the piece collapses there's other attempts at peace multiple times and he's constantly making sure there is fighting because he sees that as a way to protect his people however by the end of the century maybe he's got a bit older like about 1700 he's now near to 50 he's mellowed yeah maybe he's mellowed maybe he's realized or maybe he's realized you know our people are dying from epidemics we can't keep up this warfare like maybe he can kind of see a almost a like a like a a brotherhood um, feeling with the Haudenosaunee. Like, although they've been my enemies and my people's enemies for generations, Mm. we're dying out. And it's really sad. So maybe there's something that pushes him towards peace. So he is the person chosen to enact this peace. Interesting. Well, he certainly got the political sort of nous. You can tell Mm. that he he doesn't really, he's sort of in it for himself, but he also has a political scientific brain as well smart dude yeah really good for this sort of thing actually perfect really and also the fact that he was so pro-war before means he's not like a pacifist which probably wouldn't get through to a lot of the other first nation warriors he is clearly someone who has been in battle he is a commander he is someone that he's militarily respected he's someone that both sides would probably even the haudenosaunee he's probably like their enemy number one but would be respected by them because mm. there's a deep you know there's a deep culture of respect and especially in warfare you know their warfare used to be so ritualistic they probably would have respected the other side it's not as grimy as a lot of the european warfare which is just kill them hang them erase them and take Stick over their land. Stew, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um we're probably a bit, a bit mean about europeans <laughs> yeah but we can because we are european we can yeah and they're pretty bad here although the worst thing they did was just arrive with germs yeah. Which is not which is hard to blame them because they had no idea. No. So the governor, the French governor of Montreal at the time was the 13th governor, Louis Hector de Carrière, which I think I kind of got, and he's probably the French Frenchest name I've ever heard of. Yeah. Um, and like Condéronc, he desired peace, mainly because it's bad for business, and he seemed to not really know why. The, all of his peace efforts over the last hundred years kept failing. Because weirdly, <laughs> he puts Condoronk in charge of 
like his ambassador to the First Nations to enact this peace. So he clearly had no idea yeah. what Condé Rock had been doing all this time. Absolutely not. Which is quite funny. Yeah. Um, but lucky, luckily for Carrière, Condéronc is now pursuing peace and really charges at this. And so it's his job to bring together these warring nations that have been at war for long before the Europeans arrived, but have been like in this bloody conflict for the last hundred years. And he does a pretty bloody good job. So early negotiations start taking place in 1698 and 1699 and a preliminary peace treaty is actually signed in Montreal in 1700 but this only had some delegates some delegates from the Haudenosaunee and then the French and then some from the other side but it was decided at, at that thing we need everyone here. This peace doesn't work unless we get absolutely everyone and it's successful in 1701 1,300 delegates representing 39 First Nations arrive in Montreal. 1,300 delegates. That's yeah. massive. Insane. 39 First Nations. And these are, I mean, you know, they're not far off countries of their own. Yeah. Like, they are really independent. Although they sh- share some languages and some traditions, they are very separate. So it's a huge big deal it's like the un meeting yeah really it's a it's extraordinary i mean that's why i wanted to dive so much at the beginning because it's i can't imagine and i made kind of guesswork of what it would look like but it would have been fascinating to see it it really would and also i would be incredibly shitting myself if i was a french soldier Oof, dangerous because you probably have never seen them in so many numbers so many numbers so close to each other these people who've been fighting for so many generations and also there to show off Mm. they will be in their finery with like also their best weaponry as well to like really but you know they're trying to it's peace negotiations but that doesn't mean they don't want to show off and secure a better peace yeah exactly (laughs) they're definitely flexing yeah (laughs) so over a course of about a week the negotiations uh, kind of go on and there is quite a lot to go over and actually a couple times it does seem like it might break down but Kondiaronk is there and he really is the linchpin here and it's his speeches and like backroom negotiations with all of these different First Nations mm. that secures everything and in the end every single one of them signs the peace treaty so that's 39 First Nations and the French governor Carrière all sign the peace treaty and this is perhaps the highlight of the episode because this is where i have something to show you because we can see what the we've got a copy no i mean i don't have a copy of as it's online of the treaty and it is so cool oh Let me get up now. what because also i mean if you think about it these first nations they don't really write like they have mm, bits of yeah. language and stuff they don't all but really they don't have signatures so what do they do they have pictures <gasps> Oh my god. So listeners, this is the time where you go on our Instagram at Cloak and Niger Podcast and see this amazing document which is like styled in the same way as the Declaration of Independence, all of those, you know, early America things. But on the right hand side are the signatures of these First Nations, and they are all pictures of cranes, of turtles, of all sorts of things. A pipe. A pipe, a guy smoking a pipe. They're kind of bizarre, aren't they? They really are. And not to take away from how awesome this is, it also, you could be, if you saw it out of context, you might think it's sort of like a year three. It's, yeah, they're, they're, quite of, char- they're quite simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a bit like, you know, those, um, those uh, what do you call them, those kitchen towels that you make yeah, as kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of looks a bit like that. They are, they're, they're very simplistic and something, but there's like, the more you look at them, they're really like, you can see the important, like, it's not... It's not a pretty picture. It is a mark of this nation about who these people are. And so many of them are attached to like, that was a big part of the way they identified themselves is around animals or plants or pipes and stuff like that. And there's just so much there. And interestingly, so number five, obviously the numbers aren't real. That's put on, I think, I don't know if it's put on like... After, they look a bit stamped. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, that's a stamp as well. I don't know where... This might have been like a Wikipedia thing they added or something. Um, But this one here, number five, is the picture of Kondiaronk, and it is a rat. 
So oh. it's his signature. So he is totally fine with that being his signature. Interesting. But there's some really interesting ones. So and also you don't get like the Haudenosaunee or the Algonquins because those are like names for these larger nations. These but individual tribes. I couldn't find Mohawk, which is unusual. I wonder if there's a different name they came under. Yeah. Um. But there's some. Yeah. They like the the headdress one. I think that's what they're doing there with the man. I know. I think that's him smoking. Oh, is that him smoking? Yeah, maybe. I believe. So I do actually have... Uh, I had to translate it from French. It's a bit harder to explain. So what was that guy? What was the one we were looking at? Number 19. Number 19. Uh, da, 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 19. Chief Turin's mark could represent the Crees in the Cree language. Suffix means... Oh, it doesn't explain what it, it is. It says suffix um, irin means man. So it's just a man. It's just a man. Smoking man. Right. But yeah, there's turtles, there's cranes, there's thunderbirds, which sounds cool. It does sound cool. Um, That's so cool. It is. I've never seen anything like it. It's kind of... Because like, you're right. They are obviously quite simplistic drawings. But when you know what they are and what it's representing, it's but they, fascinating. The chances are... What's so mind-blowing about that is the people who have drawn those drawings have probably never been asked to represent their, their mm. themselves on paper before why would they need to exactly because it's all an oral culture Mm. it's just fascinating to see that and it's interesting yeah because obviously this was an important document it's an important document to us because we're europeans and the world is based on paper and contracts and all that stuff and it was important to the french but presumably it wasn't that important to the first nations delegates there and actually the rituals and the meeting of people and discussions that was where they signed that was their signature really it was the physical interaction but Europeans love a contract. And then also the final one, uh, 32, is the governor. With yeah, his lovely scrawling handwriting. Yeah, Calier. really, really easily. Um, yeah. And obviously you'll see it on the Instagram, but we'll zoom into lots of these. We'll have a load of photos of this. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, that is so I'll also probably add a link to the Wikipedia um, page that stores it, that has a high-res image of it, because it's really... I would recommend... All, I mean, I know we've said to go to Instagram, but I, it's worth looking at the whole thing. Um, and if you're French, maybe you can translate that. You speak French. Yeah. Uh, can, you read, can you read French? No. Can you read script French? Because I don't think anyone... I can... I can. Well, it's actually really easy to... Well, in terms of it's legible, yeah. but I can't I can't translate it, no. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> but so, still, yeah, really so cool. It's a very, very cool document. And it's honestly the thing that drew me to... I, I just saw this, and yeah. it really... I was like, oh, my God, I have to explain this whole well, thing. That's the thing. It, when, when we're doing our episodes, we, we, we tend to find these, like, w- these sort of hooks, these amazing pieces mm. that we really want to show the other person. Because we've said it before on the podcast, we don't really podcast. We obviously love that listeners are enjoying it. Mm. But we actually do it because we love to show the other person something really cool that they probably haven't seen before. Yeah. So that was that moment for this podcast episode. It's, <laughs> it's very... It was the... Uh, what was he? Patrick William Hitler from your from the Eloise Hitler one. Absolutely the shock there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it really it just it's it's remarkable and it's amazing how much of this was going on just before the start of what is now one of the biggest countries and most influential countries in the world. Like this treaty and this kind of declaration of peace is all happening a century before independence and everything going on in america and it's really interesting actually to think about these probably events may have almost inspired some of that stuff the kind of the formalizing and grouping together of these nations in a in a peace treaty in mm. fact the haudenosaunee uh came together it's not really sure when but there's this kind of legendary great peacemaker who kind of brought their people together and he's largely considered kind of a prophet um, and he kind of spoke about, you know, we need to join together or we won't survive. Yeah. And the way they decided to join together is quoted in like a 1988 release of the U.S. Congress as inspiration for the founding fathers. Oh, really? So, oh, yeah, they, I mean, and I assume they must be right. I mean, it's U.S. Congress saying it. Yeah. I, I mean, unless it was just like a thing they said to... to oh, because to, it's a political... Political something maybe. To, to get to get um, First Nation people down today. But it's a, it probably is true. And actually this kind of knitting together, because you just think of America's history starting in 1776 or maybe a little bit of time before the 13 colonies. Yeah. But there's these people that lived and inspired the colonists that arrived. But I think that, that what's so fascinating about what you've just shown me and what you're looking at now, listener, hopefully, is... That that it's very rare that you see evidence on paper 
of the what came before the Europeans to North America. Mm. That's what it is. So much so, yeah. I mean, yes, you have, you, you know, you, you might see sort of weaponry from the time or material culture, but you don't get textual culture because they didn't have it. So this is like one of the only times we would have ha- actually have this, this sort of crossover of the First Nation cultures into a European um sort of perspective i mm. love that really it's cool. yeah it's fascinating i'm just wondering if this must be somewhere i wonder where it is it's probably be it'll be in canada see. yeah so there's a yeah presumably it'll be in montreal, it'll be in montreal. yeah it should be in montreal but it'd be amazing to see it yeah um was it yeah. did you say it was signed where was it signed so the actual signing of the document took place in a big open field prepared for a special occasion. So wow. outside. Outside. Super important. I think, you know, inside like a, a French official building wouldn't have worked for the First Nation delegates. Because, no. you know, they want to do it under the... They want to do it out in nature. They want to do it in their country, not in this weird French colony. Yeah, and I guess the, the French are almost superfluous because... I mean, obviously, in a lot of ways, they're not because they bring the gunpowder. But as we said earlier, there are so few of them mm. that, that this 1,300 delegates who've come, mm. it's actually probably the, one of the last times where, well, no, not quite one of the last times, one of the, the rare instances where Europeans were definitely the, the lesser party yeah. in, in the North American They were kind politics. of the peacemakers. I mean, it was them driving it. I mean, probably for capitalist reasons, and but also the protection of their people, like their people were, kill, were killed by this war. They yeah. wanted to... They probably wanted to end it. Yeah, I know, but I would give all of the. Uh, I wouldn't give us give the French any more credit than they need because really they were still mucking about with. You know, they they gave as you said they they poured gasoline on a fire which yeah. was already raging. Yes. So they don't deserve the uh, the kudos for putting that fire out. No, they, they don't. I would still say that. I mean, I know this happens a lot, but I'd still say because it does also seem like the British really didn't want this piece to happen. Of course, because they didn't. it was it was a problem for the French. Exactly. And there is like. And I'm I'm not saying this is definite, but I've seen this in a couple places. But there's a kind of thought, and maybe it was because they wasn't there in force. But the French colonists certainly treated First Nation people with much bigger respect than the Dutch or particularly the British. Mm. Like the British bowled over them, and then eventually, when they kind of turned into the thirteen colonies, you get all sort you know manifest destiny. You get all of this horrificness. The French colonists traded and interacted and there was a there there was there were insults thrown from you know the french elite back in france that the people out there had gone savage yeah which really means they'd adapted and you know they'd, they'd ingratiated them in the culture there which is a good thing so there is a little bit of that but not much no i mean the great um, and then you know the worst thing they did was bring germs which is something they can't be blamed for but like it's so it's a very weird setup and uh, and they are the ones that push for peace here, probably for capitalist greedy reasons. No, okay, I see it. I see it. But yeah. it's a it's a very interesting. And so it's a that's why I kind of wanted to go because I thought the peace is more interesting than the war in this story. I Definitely. think that moment when they're signing and that document and bringing them together, and the fact that it's the French pushing it to kind of end this centuries of bloodshed between these First Nations that they kind of helped trigger, and that the other colonizers helped trigger. It's just a very, it's a very interesting time in history. It absolutely yeah. is. And thank you very much for bringing it to our attention because I'd never well, heard of it. It's, yeah, it's really, it's really, yeah, it's amazing. Although actually there's a couple more things I want to say. So one, it's a very successful piece. Okay. Lasts about 60 years. 60 years. That's is, a long time. great. Yeah. Then the British fuck it up. But <laughs> <laughs> of course they do. Yeah. <laughs> Britain, Britain invades. And then also 60 years after. Yeah, the Seven Years War. You're, yeah, you're getting Seven Wars and then the War of Independence. And then it's all sorts. Of, and the uh, Haudenosaunee side with the British against the 13 nations because they'd had peaceful connections before. Um, which probably then didn't help their cause. The fact that they side with the loot, the... The losing side, and yeah. then the thirteen colonies have no reason to respect. So, it's a sad turn of events for them. But sixty years—it's a pretty good going, to, considering how much it's going to get worse. Yeah, you know, it's nice that there was some, there was some, there was a golden time when that didn't happen. It sort of held it's, off history. Yeah, it's it's really nice. Mm-hmm. They, they, the the First Nations, a lot of the chiefs referred to it as the Tree of Peace. They have planted the Tree of Peace, nice. and there are First Nation people alive today who consider it still valid. This treaty is still considered a valid. I mean, the British ignored it, but they didn't like erase it, and it wasn't like like the First Nation said, "Okay, now this we're tearing this up." It is still considered to be an important document. Mm, Yeah, so it's really good. It's really interesting. Yeah, 
Really interesting. That is our story. I hope you enjoyed it. It was quicker than I thought, actually. Yeah, and I'm actually really glad that it wasn't, whilst it was about bloodshed, it really promotes that idea of peace. And also it shows that I, I feel like there's always this narrative that uh, that all it's a, it's a lot more grey, it's a grey area when it comes to conflict between colonists. It's never... It's not always as simple as colonists versus mm. Native Americans, First no. Nation states. It's not that at all. It's always way more complicated. Far more, yeah. And and actually, in this case, it, they were pretty irrelevant apart from bringing the guns. I guess the guns, you can hardly call them relevant. But you know yeah. what I mean. And of course, even in this instance, the British are still the worst of the worst. Yeah. You know? Yeah, they did not come off well. I didn't mean to do that. Like, I was really avoiding it. I was like, okay, this is about the French. Maybe the Dutch will get in there. And then I was reading going, and then the whole show sided with the British, and then the British oh. ignored this treaty. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. It's going to sneak in there at some point. Absolutely. But it, yeah, it's a re- it's a really interesting tale, and I really it's yeah, it's nice to hear. It was the same. It's very similar to to Shaka, where it's it's great to hear the stories of these indigenous people not through the lens of the Europeans arriving there, that they had their own things going on. You know, the war that starts here, although it's triggered by wanting to trade with the Europeans, it's their own greed. It's not the Europeans imposing something on them. It's like this valuable asset. And it's, you know, it's something that they were they were already kind of at war with each other anyway. This kind of heightened it. Yeah. So it's not... Making the white people, people the footnote of this history session is a good thing. Yeah, because at this point they were. They were they were much yeah, more minor. Absolutely. And so it's and you know, it the but and then also not weirdly uh kind of idealizing the First Nations as these perfectly peaceful spiritual people that they were people. They yeah. were exactly they were arguably exactly the same as the colonizers. We're all the same, we're all people, the British are worse, but we're all <laughs> I'm not doing this I do like British. But I am British, and I do think we do a lot of good things. But um, but yeah, like they're all people. So I think it's it's nice to see them as really three dimensional people, Absolutely. like like Ronk, who can you know out diss the French governor and then also secretly force peace negotiations to fail and trick people in a very little finger way. Yeah, very little finger. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. That thank was a you. really good. One. I've really enjoyed telling it. So, Will, next two weeks time. Our last episode. Our last episode ever. Oh, no, not ever. <laughs> Definitely not ever. Um, no, so yeah, so uh, the final one of this series will be coming out in two weeks today. And it'll be based in the same time period as everything you've heard today. Mm-hmm. But it won't have very much to do with anything that you've heard today. And uh, I've, we've also slightly broken our own cardinal rule in that I knew what was coming slightly. Yeah. So that Patrick and I didn't cross swords on this stuff so it means that i will um w- won't be focusing too much on the first nations although they they do make an appearance uh in terms of a sort of a hint for next time <laughs> i would say that it's a i almost said a sneak peek but i didn't yeah. um um it's more it's it's definitely more micro history and it's definitely uh bit of Condironk will come through in terms mm. of the wheeler dealer stuff. Ooh, love that. You've bit had of... a lot of wheeler dealers. I love wheeler dealers yeah. because they're more 3D people. Yes. Well, yeah. that's why I kind of was very happy to find Condironk because I was like, oh, this is a guy. And it's fun to tell stories about people Yeah. as opposed to, I mean, it's kind of interesting, the large social, political warfare, that kind of stuff. It's kind of interesting to hit, like see, you imagine it like a game of risk with things shifting around or civilization and stuff. But the people is where it gets really interesting. Absolutely. When you hear hear from people, when you see the weird things they do, and then it really is, they're all exactly the same. Yeah. We haven't, we're not that different from every, every person who's ever lived throughout history or anywhere in the world. They're all humans. They're all hustling and trying to get something out of nothing and... And then break down when they've got morality to deal with or something like that. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, tune in for our last one um, in two weeks' time. And thanks again for listening, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.